0: Glad that you're here this evening for Sunday Night Study. Uh, have you ever considered what the world is like without God? Well, if you haven't considered it, all you really have to do is kind of look around, turn on the TV, turn on, open your news app, uh, you will look and see what a world without God looks like. But as we said this morning, the world's always been that way. There's no surprise to us here. It may take on different shapes and sizes, but in general... The world looks a certain way when it gives up on God. And believe it or not, there's a point at which the scripture says God gives up the world. And we're going to talk about that tonight. Maybe not in the sense of giving up, but in the sense of what happens when God lets you have all of the desires of your heart. And where does that lead? Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, we're going to go a little more in depth as we do on Sunday night for our study, taking a a little bit of a longer path down this idea of the world and what it looks like without God's hand in it, without God's presence in it, without God's... uh, Acknowledgement in it. In Romans chapter 1, and I'm going to start reading verses 18. We've got quite a section here to cover. I think we'll just cover probably about the front half of that this Sunday night and get to the next half next week. Romans chapter 1 verse 18, reading from the ESV, says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness with the bad news first. You ever do that with your kids? You want the good news or the bad news? Uh, As you you get older, hopefully you begin to understand that uh, it's always better, in my view, to get the bad news first. Go ahead and get it out of the way so that you can end on a high note and get the good news. Um, Well, Paul here starts out with the bad news. And the bad news is this. Um, All of us, deserve wrath. All of us deserve hell uh, because of our sin. That's not popular. That doesn't make you uh, go viral on TikTok in your sermons, but but that's true. Um, I've stolen a line from uh, Dave Ramsey, who uses it all the time, and it's one of my favorites when people ask me, how are you? And I answer, better than I deserve, sometimes. And better than I deserve is in reference to the hope of the gospel. Uh, it's interesting the reactions and the responses that you get to that. I'll never forget one time I was in the grocery store line talking with the cashier back in the days when you, there were cashiers. And I was going through and a lady said, Well, hi, how are you? And I said, Well, I'm better than I deserve. And she said, Oh, no, 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 that's not true. Every, everyone, deserves, everyone deserves good she misunderstood what I was saying. It was an opportunity for a further conversation, but but Paul starts with what you deserve, and he starts by saying that the the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Now when we think of wrath, again, not a popular description of God. We'd much rather stick with God as love, And, and God is love, but God is also perfectly wrathful. In fact, because he's perfectly wrathful, he's perfectly loving too. When we think of wrath, uh, we can only think of it in human form. Uh, When you're driving down the road, make an error in judgment, and somebody, you know, starts waving certain digits on their uh, hand—the one-finger salute and so um, forth—you think of that as wrath. Uh, your boss, who's a bit of a hothead, slams on the table during a meeting, uh, raises his voice. And you think of that as wrath, and and that's temper, and that's human wrath, which is imperfect and short-sighted and doesn't see the whole thing. People have a hard time imagining Jesus is angry, but of course, Scripture tells us that he was perfectly wrathful, and that he made a whip and drove money changers out of the, the temple courts. It was perfectly wrathful. It was anger directed in the right way in the precise amount necessary and it was completely justified. That's the way God's wrath is. It's from heaven. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Uh, It's not from human beings. It's not imperfect in that way. It's directed against men and to men, I'm using men in the in the g- generic sense here, all mankind, uh, because of their sin. The wrath of God can be seen in Genesis, the wrath of God can be seen through the prophets, the wrath of God can be seen all the way into the gospel, into the life of Jesus. Uh, the wrath of God can be seen in uh, the letter to Corinth as Paul uh, admonishes and rebukes the Corinthians for their Tolerance of sin, uh, this is this is the wrath of God. It's it's spiritual in its beginnings, in its origin. It's perfect. It's sinless. The scripture tells us to be angry and sin not. That's you know that's that's you know trying to rein in our wrath. But God's is always sinless, and His wrath is directed against all that is against God. Uh, it. it uh, lashes out against all that violates everything that's true and everything that's good and everything that's of God. A commentator by the name of Murray wrote this. I, I like it. He said, Wrath is the holy revulsion of God's being against that, against all that which is the contradic- contradiction of His holiness. Uh, we see it. In Noah and the ark, I know some young parents like to decorate their nursery with Noah and the ark and all the animals, Uh, but if you think about what happened at the flood, that's not really a great nursery picture. You can think of the account of Lot as he was in Sodom as they were fleeing Sodom, as his wife looked back in longing. You can see it in so many examples of God's perfect wrath. The psalmist describes it in Psalm chapter 7, verse 11. It says God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation. Righteous indignation, by the way, every day. Um... His wrath is stored up for judgment. Romans chapter 2, verse 5 says this, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. You see, being in Christ is the only way to escape God's wrath. That when God's righteous wrath is poured out on the day of judgment, it will only be those who are in Christ who will be able to stand. Your works won't save you. Your righteousness, which is like filthy rags, won't save you. Uh, All of the, the things that you would make a list of in your favor will not save you on the day of judgment. Those things will not stand in the face of God's wrath. The only remedy for God's wrath is described perfectly in John chapter 3. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So, um, we understand that from Paul's description that this wrath He's laying it out. This is from heaven, it's against everything ungodly, and it's going to be poured out on all the ungodly at some point, eventually, on Judgment Day. Um, Interesting uh, side verse here, Colossians chapter 3 says this, verses 5 and following, Put to death whatever, therefore, is earthly in you, or some translations say fleshly in you, Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Now, of course, he's not making an exhaustive list here, okay? He's saying that any unrighteousness, but he spells out some specific ones, And some of which we would say, yeah, those are terrible. And some of which you might say, yeah, I thought that was kind of acceptable. Or it's tempting. Our culture will tell us, it's fine, it's fine. In these two, you once walked. You'll see this in a couple of Paul's epistles, writing again, reminding them that they used to walk in a certain way, but now they're in Christ, they don't walk that way anymore. But now, verse 8, you must put them all away. Anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk from your mouth? Do not lie to one another. Seeing that you put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. There's a lot of talk about self in our culture today. Self-love and self-care and selfies, and you know, it's all based around you being the center of your universe. And one thing that I find that, that interesting, at least in our present culture, is that certain sins get a pass. That, that, that certain sins, it's, it's actually celebrated to, to be your authentic, what do they say, your authentic self. But Christians are to put those away. It doesn't mean we're not tempted by them, but it means we no longer serve them. Um, Some people say, well, this is just the way I am. Whether it's my sexuality or my temper or my my tendency toward gossip, it's just the way I am. Well, if you're a Christian, uh, you're supposed to put off the old self. In fact, we're called to crucify, to kill off the old self. And it's easy to kill off certain parts of yourself... But others are far more stubborn. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you put off your old self with its practices and put on the new self with its being renewed in knowledge after the image of a creator. So, first thing we see is God's perfect wrath, which is always just and always right. And the only remedy, the only, the only way to stand for that, within that, is in Christ, Second, he says, God is not only perfectly wrathful, but he's plainly seen. Uh, God revealed his presence and his power all the time. Uh, Psalm 19 says, "Uh, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The heavens declare the glory of God. Day after day, they pour forth speech and night after night, they pour out knowledge. The evidence of God is not in a, always in a, uh, the seeing of God in physical form, but seeing the evidence of God everywhere. In fact, that's what Romans 1 says, His invisible qualities, His invisible attributes, can be plainly seen in the things that have been made. Uh, the eternal power of God, the divine nature of God, uh, are all seen in this creation. We, you know, it's impossible, even for an atheist, to not see the evidence of God. Whether it's a beautiful Kansas sunset, or the mighty ocean waves, or standing at the rim of the Grand Canyon, or at the top of Mount Everest looking up into the night sky to look into the Milky Way galaxy, or looking into uh, a tiny microscope slide to see the cellular design. From the greatest to the smallest, God's evidence is everywhere. And only fools continually ignore it. The evidence for God and for His power and for His might and for His nature, it really leaves us without excuse. Um, I don't know exactly how Judgment Day is going to play out, if it's going to be an actual 24-hour day, if it's going to be eons of time, I don't know. Um, I don't know if it's just going to be you and God, or if it's going to be a giant line, or if it's going to be a big screen... Um, I don't know how it's going to work out, how it's going to play out, what we're going to see. But, but in a lot of those things that I imagine, uh, for those folks who leave this earth convinced that there is no God, uh, I think God's just going to have a lot of questions for them. Where did you come from? Who did you think designed you? Who did you think gave you the ability to think and reason? Who was it that gave you the ability to love? Who set within you an innate sense of right and wrong? When you looked outside at the stars and the moon and the sun, where did you think all that came from? And I think those folks, moments before their eternal condemnation, will stand speechless and without excuse. The commentator Lenski said, Men cannot charge God with hiding them himself from them and thus excuse their irreligion and their immorality. <clears throat> We're all without excuse. And in fact, James uh, chapter 2, verse 19, he goes on to say, You believe that there's one God, good, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. You say, yeah, that's, that's, that's a given. Even in the spirit world, they, I mean, they acknowledge and recognize God. They don't obey God. They don't yield to God. They don't do his will. They reject him in every possible way. But there's no denying the existence of God. So God's perfectly wrathful. God's plainly seen. And yet, the godless will continue to ignore God and only suffer the consequences. Um, It says, starting in verse 21, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God, or give thanks to Him. Uh, They didn't honor Him, they didn't worship Him. Um, Charles Spurgeon wrote this, It was no good to them to know God, or they glorified him not as god so my theological friend over there who knows so much he can split hairs over the finest doctrines it does not matter what you think or what you know unless it leads you to glorify god and be thankful now this is interesting because there are some people who know god or know about God and yet still reject God as far as yielding their hearts and their lives to Him. They don't honor God, they don't worship God, they don't give thanks to God. The closer you get to God, the closer you... You'll never fully understand Him, but as as you seek God, the natural response... I think it's actually impossible to draw near to God without becoming full of awe and a sense of wonder and and something delighting in your soul and in your spirit that, that, that can only be explained by the created drawing near to its creator. And so, yes, there's this group of people who do not believe in God and they refuse to acknowledge God. All of that, but, but there's also another group of people who know God and ignore Him. And I'm not sure which is worse. To know about God, but to not listen to God. To, to, to read the words, but to refuse to yield to them. Uh, to, to, to be in a building, but, but not be in worship. Uh, so we have to be careful that we don't just pick on the atheists. We we need to make sure that as we draw near to God, in our knowledge and our love and and in every way when we're seeking Him, that we make sure that we honor Him, we glorify Him, and we worship Him and give Him praise. <clears throat> I, I quoted from Psalm 19. Lee, finish out. Some of that psalm. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. The last psalm calls us to this. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. We all, of the living, (laughs) have breath. And so Scripture calls us that that should call us to seek out our Father God, to praise Him and to glorify Him and to thank Him. Have you thanked God today? Have you thanked God this week? Um, Is your attitude generally one of always finding fault and complaint? Or or, or does it gravitate toward being grateful for what God's given you and praising Him for the blessings that you have and worshiping Him for who He is and for what He will do and what He is doing? That's a good question for us to think about. We're called to praise God and to thank God The scripture says that they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And so this is the, the... next result of continuing to ignore God, whether you acknowledge Him or not, the more that you ignore Him, eventually you get to a point where you become futile in your thinking. Uh, the, the, The longer that you seek to go your own way, the longer that you seek to live life on your own terms without any submission or yielding to God, the worse that it gets. And that's true for individuals, and that's true for groups, and that's true for cities, and that's true for countries. The longer we continue in our own way, and thinking our way is better, uh, the worse it gets for us. And God will not intervene. He will let us go off on our own way. And there's a certain point where he'll give you over. We'll talk a little bit about that more in depth next week. But it, it begins with this, what Paul describes as futile thinking. Uh, their foolish hearts were darkened. Uh, we see this today. When you, when you live life without God... Um, no matter how smart you are, you become fu- fu- fule- <laughs> foolish and futile in your thinking. Uh, it's impossible. I mean, you, your heart was made to function with God. It's the same way with your mind. And, and so the farther you drift from God, the the less you're able to think and, and, and reason. Those are important things. Um. An example from culture that's uh, kind of an amusing one to me, and some of you probably have seen the origins of this, um, you might ask people that are in favor of uh, 107 genders, uh, could, you, could you tell me what is a woman? Could, could you just, I mean, it's just a simple, honest question, and a simple four-word question... Uh, can throw those who have drifted, maybe ran from God, into such futile thinking. They're incapable of giving a, a precise definition of what a woman is. That's futile thinking. When you get to that point as a, as a person, and it's even worse that when you get there as a society, uh, it's hard to get your way back. You talk about your compass being misaligned. You don't have the ability to uh, understand basic biological science. Basic facts and truths of the universe. Let alone the, the one who created that universe. That's futile thinking. And that's the result of godlessness. That's always where it ends up. Whether it was with Sodom and Gomorrah, whether it was King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, whether it was the Roman Empire, all of it, all of it leads to futility without God. It's where darkened hearts and darkened minds end up. There's no other destination. And so... And with all that, they will not escape that God's evidence is within them. Um, The people that say there is no God and reject him, still have some innate sense of what's right and wrong. They see something happening in their world and they say, that's wrong. That should not be. If there is no God, where did that come from? And furthermore, why does it matter? If there's no God, there's no moral authority. What gives you or anyone else the right to say that rape is wrong or murder is wrong? What's wrong? I mean that, what's wrong? (laughs) Where'd you get your sense of what's right? God's given you some things even within yourself that you cannot deny. An innate sense of morality, uh, emotional capacity, the the desire to create things, the ability to think and reason and speak, uh, the need for relationships, the instinct to worship, which is so strong that when you ignore your Creator, you will worship something. As Paul will say, the created things, exchanging God's glory for an image, reversing the roles of God and man, creator and created, and making God in your own image instead of Him making you in His. Psalm chapter 14 says this, The fool says in his heart, There is... No God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is no one none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside, the psalmist says. Together they've become corrupt. There is no none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge? All the evildoers who eat my people up as they eat bread, do they not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is within the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. May we not be foolish. May we not be godless. There's a warning from Romans that God's plain evidence is there be wise not to ignore it, that God's perfect wrath awaits all who are not in Christ, and we would do well to prepare for that day. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we're grateful to you for your word which instructs us, which makes us think, which draws us closer to you, which corrects us, which rebukes us at times, which admonishes us, which encourages us. It's clear, easy-to-understand words uh, have been set in part uh, in our minds and our hearts this evening and this morning. We pray that we might yield to those words, truly hear your word, and put it into practice. Lord, we pray for those who are not ready to face your wrath. We pray for all who are not in who have not been justified through your Son, who have not been sanctified uh, through their walk, walking in the light. Um, As we go forth this week, Lord, lead us to souls that need to know you, that are distant from you, and yet know something is amiss in their heart and in their lives without you. Lord, use us as you would, you would have, whether it be our neighbors, our friends, our co-workers, to bring the lost to Jesus. Lord, we confess to you our own sin, our own shortcomings, uh, our own selfish pride, our own times when we have known your word and yet not yielded to it. Uh, for that, Father, we, we ask your forgiveness And we pray that this week uh, your spirit would encourage and strengthen us and that you would give us not only the courage to be who you've called us to be, but the boldness to share your love with others. Uh, You have in mind who those people are, Father, and we want to be able to reach them as best we can. Continue to be with those who are sick or suffering, hurting or sad. Continue to be with Northside. Help us to grow in the unity of the Spirit, and the bond of peace. Lord, we love you very much. And we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you love us because of Jesus. And it's in his name we humbly offer this prayer. Amen.